If you would please, if you, for, if you forgot your Bible, raise your hand. The usher will be happy to get you a Bible because we want you to follow along with us as we continue where we pick back up in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. We're going to just take verses 12 through 17 today. And if you'd like, I'm going to read through that. And, uh, and so that we'll go back through verse by verse to make sure there's clarity uh, in the understanding. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. John says there, and he says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. Notice, I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, And you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. We see, we see here this morning that the Holy Spirit speaking to the Apostle John to write these words down on paper for his readers of that time, but also for us as readers, for listeners here this morning. That is how the Holy Spirit works. That's how God works and speaks to you and I, is by his word and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle John expressed the goals of this letter, if you remember, and the, and the, the focus of this letter in the very first part of chapter 1, that he would, in verse 4 of chapter 1, we write to you that your joy may be full. He wants you, his readers, the believers of that time, to be filled with joy. Because as a believer, you should have joy. Because of what God has done in and through your life. He saved you from the sin that you've lived. He continues and he highlights again down in chapter 2, verse 1. And, and my little children, you see that he references John throughout the scriptures. My little children, my little children. It is an endearment. Why? He's 100 years old. He's sitting here looking at all these people he's writing to. He was writing. He didn't see them personally, but he was writing to them. He's been ministering to them and praying for them. They're like children to him. He wants them to see them grow and mature in their faith. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, with the Father, Jesus Christ himself, the righteous one. We have an advocate to help us through this life. 
So he continues here and he says, I know I, he's got this focus and he's, he's trying to help them, encourage them in their walk. But here we see in the, as the letter continues that he gets very more specific concerning the motivation of his letter. He's going to teach them. He's, the Spirit is going to teach us today that the purpose of this epistle was to bring to light the spiritual state of his readers. What spiritual state do you find yourself in today? Are you a non-believer? Just searching and trying to figure this thing out on who God is? Or are you a young child, as we will see, a young children who are just born again, just a brand new believer? You haven't even learned how to crawl, let alone, you're barely flipping to the left or to the right. You can't even, you're just grunting. You don't even know what you're doing. But you just know that you know that you're saved. Born again. Or are you a young man? Or young woman in the Greek, we see that it can be either or. Young man or young woman today who's growing in their faith and they're going through the tests and the trials and the struggles. And then we see a third, another state, and that is are you a father? Are you a mother? Are you a mature Christian? That's what we will see today. Because as we look at this, John touches on three states of the spiritual life. Little children, young men, mature fathers. And in light of all of the warnings that, God, that John gives to us in this very first part of his letter, he's going to give us another warning to his readers. The readers might think that he would, does Apostle John think we're... Is he dissatisfied with us? Does he not think we're not growing? Does he think we're not safe? I mean, readers sometimes can, as, as someone is preaching or someone is teaching or someone is writing a letter, you sometimes you're thinking, how do they think about me? So John here is going to make it clear how he thinks about his readers and the spiritual state that they find in, his, in, his, in their lives. But John didn't have any dissatisfaction with his readers. He actually makes it clear that he was assured of their salvation. That their salvation wasn't a question here. It's how you're living your life as a saved person, as a child of God. That's what he was trying to encourage them to do, to focus it on. So he writes here about the spiritual states that he's addressing them one by one here. And he starts off in chapter 2, verse 12, and he says, I write to you, little children. It's like I'm writing right now. I'm writing to you, little children. Then I, I always ask the question as you read this, why is he writing this letter? And he gives it to us. Because your sins are forgiven you. For his name's sake. Let me remind you as a brand new believer, as a just one is just starting their journey in this relationship with God, you're saved. Your sins have been forgiven. Do you remember the day of your salvation when you realize you're such a wicked sinner and that you're, the, the, the sin leads to death, spiritual death, and, and you realize you needed a savior and you called out to Jesus to save you? Do you remember that day? And you're just starting that relationship. 
You're like a little children. You're just growing and someone needs to feed you the word of God and needs to encourage you and, and sometimes pick you up and carry you because in your early journey, you can't walk, you can't even crawl. You're just born, born again and learning and growing and listening and watching those who are more mature. So he, we, we, we begin this Christian born-again moment life as a little children. And when we are in the state of spirituality where we need to know and to grow and to be amazed at the forgiveness of our sins, John says, be amazed that you're saved. Amazed that God reached down and touched you and changed your life. You were once in darkness. You're now in light. You see things you never saw before. You were so confused. You had no idea what your purpose of life is and why are we here and what's going to happen to me. All those things came to, to now be clear for you because you're now a child of God and you know where your eternity is. You couldn't even figure out what's going to happen tomorrow and now you, you, God shows you what eternity is going to be like for you as a child of God. And all that God did for you, that he forgave you, he, gave, he forgives us righteously in Jesus Christ. It's that relationship that changes everything. There's something we need to be rejoicing in. If we do not rejoice in the fact that you're saved as a little child, that means all of us. What is hindering you from having the joy of the Lord that gives you the strength to live for him every day? To live and live a life that is pleasing to him every day. What is it that's emptying you of his joy or hindering your joy as a little child of amazement? Like any little child, ooh, look at the colors and the, and the, the voices and the sounds and the wonders of amazement. Where is that in your life? And what's hindering that? We probably fail to see the, the badness of our own sin and the greatness of his forgiveness is really the foundation of it. Do you realize you've been forgiven of all of your sins as a child of God? Do you remember that? Don't ever take that for granted. The fact that God has forgiven me of all of my wicked sins of the past, present, and in future. That should bring great joy. The fact that Christ was willing to die for all that sin of mine. Because he loves me. That should bring great joy to us every day. If we ponder on that truth every day. That's what we need to do is meditate on that truth every day to bring us into the joy of the Lord because that was what will bring you the strength to endure the things that will come against you. The challenges that we face every day in life. The joy. Yes, you may want to kill me, but I have the joy of the Lord because I have been forgiven. Because if you take my life today, I will be in the presence of Jesus forever. Please, this is not a bad thing for me. 
But what happens if the nuclear happens? I have been forgiven. I am set free. If nukes come down on me, I am in the presence of the Lord for eternity. Are you kidding me? When you're facing at war, you're facing what calamity, you've just been diagnosed with cancer and you're going to die. They give you supposedly in six months. God determines my life. He tells me when I was going to be born. He knitted me in my mother's womb and he knows the day and the time and how he takes me out of this world. When you know that truth as a child of God, there's tremendous joy and peace that will fill your life. You do no longer worry and anxious and overwhelmed. No, you'll be filled with the joy of the Lord who will be your strength. He's saying to them, as a little child, the forgiveness of the special joy of God's little children. Because God's forgiveness does not come by some degrees. When you've been forgiven, you're completely forgiven. Complete. Final. Done. It's done. It's finished. Why? Because forgiveness is a God's gift. He handed to you and you receive that gift of grace. Of forgiveness. It's not man's achievement. It's not your achievement. It's not my achievement. It's not how good you are every day that earns God's love. God loved you before you even were born again. So we see here in the very beginning, John says there's two things or characteristics of the spiritual state of a little child. One, he realizes his sins are forgiven. And in 13, chapter, or verse 13, at the end of verse 13, that he knows the Father. And there's nothing greater to watch a child, a young child, hear his father's voice or his mother's voice and immediately turn because they know the voice. There's nothing greater to see that. He continues in the first part of chapter, uh, verse 13 here. He talks about, I write to you fathers. Again, in the Greek, it, it, does, lend, it does open the fact that it refers to mothers too. So I write to you fathers and mothers here. This, this, it means maturity, a mature person in the faith. You're mature. I write to you. So he's two extremes. You're brand new in the faith and to those who are very mature in the faith. I'm, he's showing a contrast. The second spiritual state, this mature father, this mature believer. Just like a little child, there are also mature fathers. There are men and women in deep, long spiritual state of maturity. They've been walking with the Lord and deeply know, know him personally. They have the kind of walk experience with God that doesn't come overnight. There's a depth about that person. You go, that person has been spending a lot of time with God. They really know God. Have you met those people? You just get around them and you're just like, you know they spend time with God. They know who God is. Not because they quote things. A lot of people quote. Satan quotes scripture. 
I'm talking a depth of relationship. It, you, it's, it's, you don't have to speak. You just know their presence. The Holy Spirit is so overflowing from their life. There's such a peace and joy in their life. you just like, man, what are they on? No, they're not on anything. They're on, they're on, they're on a road trip with Jesus is what they are. They didn't smoke nothing. And they didn't know drinking nothing either. There's no power drink there. The only power is the Holy Spirit living in, in and through them. Alive and well because they walk in the Spirit and truth. That's where we want to be, isn't it not, brothers and sisters? To a point where we're so mature that we are walking in the Spirit and truth. It's just like breathing and people come and are gravitated to you because you're so bright of a light. There's something about your life that they go, I want to know more about what they have. And you can have a deep personal relationship with God. Not an intellectual one. That's part. But a deep, a deep relationship with him. It's like I, the picture I picture and think of is a, it's like a big, strong uh, oak, old oak tree that's been tested by the winds and storms. The roots are so deep you don't even see. And so full and so fruitful and so big and so massive that's gone through storm after storm after storm. It's been tested and tested, but strong. No one's going to just pick that thing and uproot it and move it. Does that speak of you? Or are you could be tossed and fro with the wind and uprooted so quickly and moved like it's no big deal to you? And it's the reason is because you have known him. That spiritual state of maturity has its roots in knowing who God is. It's a depth of fellowship and relationship with Jesus that you cannot shake. Like little children, fathers know their sins are forgiven. They're past that. They're not questioning if they're saved or not. They know they're with no question that they're saved. They've moved on in maturity. They're now have been going through and been tested because they've been living for Christ and being obedient to Christ and doing what he's called them to do and exercising the gifts that he's given them to serve his people, to serve him and to please him. There's a, such a depth there that God has brought them through hurts that no one can even experience. Trauma that God has healed and is never now, is no longer affecting their lives. The drug-induced mind is now so clear that you, you, it's like they've never done drugs before. Their identity of being a drunkard is no longer, it's not, it's not, even, a, it's not even part of their life. Go on and on down your list. I'm telling you, as you mature and you become that father, that mother of maturity, that, that depth, those things of the past that causes problems in people's lives, they fade away. Not by a program, but by spending time with Jesus, the Savior of the world. 
So the fathers understand forgiveness. They've moved on. They understand the nature of the eternal father. They know who he is. And we also know that the mature fathers overcome the wicked one of, by being submitted to the word like young men, as we will talk about. So John says here, the simple, as you grow and mature, your life becomes simpler and simpler and more content than ever before. That all the complexities of religiosity and all these what-ifs and principles, and I need to know the principles of ministry and principles of life and principles of fatherhood and principles of this, and you got these books after books after books trying to tell you how to live your life. Let me encourage you, as you grow and mature in that, you get simpler and simpler as you mature. It becomes simpler and simpler because you know from the beginning You know who he is, who was from the beginning. You have a single passion, and that is to know Jesus at a deeper level. That's why you go back and read and meditate on John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. He continues here in in, in verse 13. he, He talks about the young men or young ladies here. He says, I write to you, young men. Why? Because you have overcome the wicked one. See, John is so, so just in love with these people because he is so excited the fact that not only the children have know that they have been forgiven, that there's a maturity in, in the father that you can grow where you can know him at a, such a deep level. But we also know that as young men, that's between when you're first born again and you're mature, this young man, young woman, state of mind. Look what he says here. You have overcome the wicked one. Just as much as the little children and the fathers understand they've been forgiven, the young men, the young ladies, they know they've been forgiven. But they're no longer little children, but they still not yet quite fathers and mothers of maturity yet. But look what he says here. You young men, you young women, you're on the front line of God's work among his people. You are in the heart of the battle when you are no longer a brand new believer, but you haven't fulfilled that 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 contentment of full maturity yet, you are in the spiritual battle of your life. But he says, you have overcome the wicked one. Which is really encouraging, is it not? Because if you're sitting here as a young man or a young woman, in spiritual growth, your maturity in that state, you don't think you're going to overcome the wicked one. You're still wrestling with the wicked one. You're still battling, it seems like, every day, the wicked one. Let me encourage you. Your relationship with Jesus has already given you victory. He's already given you victory. This is not about who's going to win the war. He's already won. You just have to go through the battles in these little skirmishes and recognize and declare, God has already You've been forgiven. You have eternal hope. You have a hope and a promise of the future that you never had before. But 
These young men, these young women, they're engaged in the battle with the wicked one. We don't send our little children out to war. We don't send our older men and older women out to war. It's the young people who are in the midst of the battle and the strength of their youth is coming and are the ones sent out to war. The greatest efforts, the greatest cost, the greatest strength are expected of the young men to do hard things. The young man in the faith not only knows his sins are forgiven, but knows that the father is, is, is the maturity of, of the hope of where he's going to be. But he has to overcome the wicked one. The young men have overcome the spiritual enemies. Because these spiritual enemies look to destroy these young men. How do they overcome the wicked one? Well, we see in verse 14, by the word of God. The young men know that it is a battle against Satan and his representatives, and it must be by the word of God. We see the word of God is a sword, is part of the armor of God. It's your sword, and that's what you start swinging in the middle of a battle. Children don't know how to pick up a sword and start slinging. Young men and young women need to learn how to use the word of God to fight the spiritual battles to overcome the wicked one. He continues at the end of verse 13, and I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. He comes back to the little children again. It's in this spiritual, verse spiritual state of spiritual maturity, we, we sink our roots deep in the love of, of the Father, the care of God, the fact that you are loved, that you're protected, you're there watching over you. That's when you first get saved. That is the most important to understand. And we know him as our caring and protective father or mother we see ourselves in his dependent state as children. John uses two different Greek words here in verse 12 and verse 13. The first time in verse 12, it was technonon. It means an emphasis of a child's relationship of dependency on a, of a parent. But here in verse 13 is pation. And it's a more of an emphasis on the child's immaturity or needing of instruction. So John says, I know you need to be protected. You need to be nourished. You need to be this. But now I'm telling you, as a young child, I need to instruct you. You need to be willing to learn and to be instructed, to be discipled up, as we would say. And as you mature, you're going to be instructed up and you're going to grow because the goal is to become that mature father, that mature woman, mother. In verse 14, I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Note the change here from I am writing to you right now to I have written to you, fathers. It's not a past tense, more than an emphasis in the language to say, I'm going to repeat. (laughs) When God repeats things in the word, you always take note. 
So I've already written. I've already explained it. I'm going to continue to explain it. It will always be explained to you. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known God. You've known Jesus, who is from the beginning. Shows that it should be emphasized to us, constantly reminded of the relationship with Jesus that people have as they grow spiritually. Spiritual growth that will lead to both truth and depth. A great example is Paul and how he says it. Paul in his letter to the Philippians could say that he counted all his previous spiritual achievements, all the things of religious things he's done, he just calls it as rubbish. It was just rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of just knowing Jesus. Philippians 3.10, he says, that I may know him. See, as you mature and all these things and you're flipping around, okay, 66 books in this Bible. Okay, what's the Greek and what's the... You, you go through this growth as a young guy and as a young lady trying to grow and grasp your arms around this. But as you mature, you will get to the point of, I just want to know Jesus more. Any new believer, anyone who comes, where do you start when you look at 66 books? I always say, put them in the book of love, the book of John. The same John here who wrote 1 John. The one who loved Jesus so deeply. And Jesus loved John so deeply. He says, in verse 14, it continues, he says, I have written to you, young men. Again, pass it. I, that, that, again, I'm emphasizing to you, young men. Because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Again, the repetition, the emphasis, the ideas, the indication that, young men, you are strong. God has made you very strong. He's made you ready to battle the spiritual battles against the enemy, the wicked one. You've overcome the wicked one. Why? Because the word of God abides in you. If you're in the, st the state of, as a young man or a young woman, that level of maturity right now today, can you say that you abide in his word? That the word of God is part of you? You're a part of him? If you're sitting there going, I don't think so, Pastor. Don't ask anybody to raise hands, please. I won't. I don't. Just know what state you're in. You're still maybe a little child and you need to grow and that's why you're here. Praise the Lord. Because you're wanting and you're hungry and thirsting for the righteousness. You're hungry and thirsting for the word of God. You want to learn for the very first time who God is. Praise the Lord, you're here. Just keep showing up regardless of how you feel. Because your feelings will, mis will mislead you. And I can tell you the wicked one is going to make you feel like not going. Because why would, he, why would the wicked one want you to grow and mature? He wouldn't. Because if you're mature, then he, can, he has no power over you. 
But if you do allow them, then watch out. So he says to the young men, you're strong. You've gained some measure of spiritual maturity. You're moving on. You're moving forward. You're growing. Keep going because of God's words lived in them. The word of God has now made its, itself at home in your hearts. You can't wait to be in the word of God and to hear from God and hear it teach because you want to grow and mature because you know God works great things in your life when he does it. But understand, believers who think power lies in merely quoting scripture is making a great mistake. It's not the quoting of a scripture. It's not because you can say you've read the whole Bible that gives you power. It's rather it's the submission to the Father's will that overcomes the enemy. It's hearing and then doing the will of God. That's where you get power. That's where transformation takes place in your life. The wicked one flees when he hears a man or a woman say, I don't care what my fleshly tendencies are. I don't care what the world is doing. I don't care what the, the enticements that are happening and people who are trying to sway me by all kinds of means. None of that will faze me because I am not swaying away from the word of God. I know what the culture's telling me. I know what the culture's trying to force down my throat. I know what it thinks, but I am not going to stray and compromise the truths of God. Regardless of what the culture's going to do. Let me give you a news flash for some of you. The world is going to get more wicked. And when it gets more wicked, it means it's going to go completely against the word of God. And you as a child of God are going to be tested. Will you stay abiding in the word of God? Or will you start compromising and accepting the lies of the enemy into your life? That is what's going to challenge you and me until the Lord takes us home. Which I hope is very soon. That is our battle, my brothers and sisters. It will be the spiritual battle. It's happening today. It's been happening around the world. It's just now at, it's now at our shores. We see it in the culture everywhere. That the things that I teach directly, simply from the word completely goes against the world. That's why he says... There's nothing new under the sun here. What I just said is going to, as, as we continue to read here, that's exactly what John is saying to them back then. As you walk with Jesus, the spiritual state of life gets simpler and simpler because you, you no longer walk according in confusion of what's going on or what should I, should not do. You simply walk with Jesus. You simply say, Jesus, you're my life. It's not ministry. That's not my life. 
It's not theology. That's not my life. It's not my success. It's not my life. It's not my job. It's not my promotions. It's not my works. It's always, always, always about you, Jesus. I love being with you, Jesus. That's where we need to go when you grow. That is when you know you've reached the spiritual state of spiritual maturity. When you simply say, everything else can fade away, but not my relationship with Jesus. See, John was not dissatisfied with the spiritual state of his readers. He did not even question or doubt their salvation. He saw the spiritual state of these people as good. John's view was had a very healthy, the fact that he saw them in all three stages and growing and maturing in the relationship with God. But he wishes or he wished to warn them about the dangers of what exists around them and coming against them. No matter how far one has advanced in their maturity and their walk with Christ, is always at risk of the enemy. He's warned us many things here in the beginning of the letter. He now gives us another one. We'll finish up here with verses 15, 16, and 17. He says here, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, a major warning to the readers. Major warning to you and I even today. The Greek word here for world is cosmos, and it means an entity or a hostility toward God. A system that is seductive or have this luring influences which born-again believers must continually must resist. What this word cosmos in the context right here, John is not saying that it's, it's a, a group of people, a global earth, mass humanity, God loves the world. John 3.16, he came and died for the world. He's talking about a system of sinful humanity that is united in one purpose. Rebelling against God. That's the system, the world that he's referring to here. One of the very first examples of the idea of the world system coming and pushing against God's word and against who he is, the, the foundation of who he is. We see it in the scripture. What, what is it? Do you know? We find it in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel speaks of human society uniting and rebelling against God at the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, there was an anti-God leader of humanity at that time called Nimrod. And there was an organized rebellion against God. They were disobeying the commandment of God that said, you are to now disperse and go all around the world. And they weren't going to have it. We're not going to do what God told us to do. We're going to do what we want to do. 
So what did they do? They made this distinct, direct disgust against God's word and promise, and they built themselves this tower, the Tower of Babel. And that was probably because they were probably a water-safe tower to protect against the future flood from heaven. God said, I will never flood this earth again with water. They did not believe God's word. God said to disperse around the world. They said, no way. We're going to hang together. We're going to build ourselves a tower. And when you flood again, when you come against us like that, God, we're going to climb our tower. We're not going to be washed away. That whole story of the Tower of Babel shows us an another fundamental fact about the world system. That the world's progress that we see today, we see technology, we see governments, we see organization that can make man feel better, better off, better to opportunities, but not better as an individual. Because we like being better off, it's easy to fall in love with the world because of what the world offers you. It's enticement. It's luring to you. But none of those things make you better. Only better off. And finally, the Tower of Babel shows us the world system as impressive and as powerful as it appears to be in front of us today. We'll never win out over God. The Lord defeated this rebellion there at the Tower of Babel very easily. That world system will never win out over God. God always wins. His word will always come true, regardless of how you feel. I hope and pray that you're not fighting against God today. Because you'll lose. Just recognize that he loves you and his promises are for you. He's for you, he's not against you. But this world is against you and me. We are not to love either the world's system or its way of doing things. There is a secular, anti-God, rejecting God way of doing things that characterizes the human society today. And it is easy to love the world in this sense that of what it offers you and the possible perfect life that you can create. If you love the world, there, is, there are rewards to gain, you think. If you may find a place in prestige or a, a, a sense of status of honor and, and comfort and, and all these things that are benefiting your life and all the things that are available to you. But the world system knows how to reward lovers of the world. Even the best rewards that is from the world only last as long as you live. It's not for eternity. Not only are you not to love the world, but it says, or the things of the world. There is so much a warning against a love of things. 
The warning against the love for the beauty of the world. But remember, God created the world, so he's not saying that. He says to just make sure you worship the creator, not the creation. I love trees, especially in the heat of the summer. I love sitting under the shade. But you're not going to find me hugging it. And there are some trees I really, really, really love because they burn much better when you want to have a bonfire. But you're not going to find me hugging it or giving my life over for it. See, you can love the creation more than the creator. We see that in many organizations out there today. But you got it backwards. You're to love the creator, not the creation. Remember? Because we know the end of the story. We know what it's going to be in Revelation. We know that God's going to create the new heavens and the earth. So the tree you gave your life for and you hugged and kissed on and maybe even etched in to say, I love you, is all going to burn. It's temporary. But he says, do not, do not hold on to the love of these things of the world. It's a, it's a warning of loving the material things which characterizes the, human, the world system. The world buys our love with the great things I call stuff. It has to give us this stuff. And this stuff is what entices us. And it's the status that goes with it all that's enticing. It can really make our hearts at home in the world if we're not careful. Be very careful with the things you love because that is what you're going to spend your time, your money, and energy on. You can always tell you where you are in your relationship. God is where you spend your time, your money, and your, and your energy on. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What does that mean? Many people think, oh, you, you're not saved? No, that's not what it means. When you fill your life daily with the things of this world, you make no room for the word of God in your life and the relationship with God. You're too distracted. You're just always just trying to create your own life out there. And the one who gave you life is the one who has this perfect plan for you but you're ignoring him because you don't have room in your life for him. Oh, when it clicked for me, when I first got saved, when I heard myself, I remember early, early on saying, I don't have time to read the word of God. I'm really busy. It clicked for me. And realize I love the world and the things of the world more than my relationship with God. Because I had made no room for the word of God to come into my life. And I said, that's me. This Holy Spirit showed me, that is you, Corey. You need to make changes. You've got to make changes. See, we find here that people can really sway things 
very extremes. You can claim to love God and yet loves the world. And there's something wrong with that claim to love God if you just love the world because you're not going to have room for the things of God in your life. The world will compete for the love of your, of your life. Your Christ, as a Christian, you will be, the, the world will want to compete and try to take your love so that you will not love God and do the things he's called you to do. You can't have both. James makes it clear, James 4.4. 4. He writes to the Christian readers there. He says, friendship with the world is hatred toward God. He makes it really bold, does he not? When you fill your life with the, the commitments, the love, the priorities of this world, then there is no room for the love of God for his word to come into your heart. That's why you're not maturing. That's why you're not growing. And through the centuries, Christians have gone overboard in their thinking, leaning on their own understanding and attempts in a way to deal with this worldliness, this pull on people's lives. And they go to this extreme. And at one time, it was thought to be a really godly thing. If you're really godly, if you really love God, then you would do what some of those people try to do. They try to escape from the... um, the human society. I'm going to go find myself in a place on the top of a mountain and no one around me. No, 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 nothing of a human society. It's just going to be me and my family or me, myself, and God. Or it could be the monk in the monastery or with the nun in the monastery. I'm just going to get out of, out of society so I don't have any influence whatsoever. But the problem is, with that mentality, is that they brought right back into the monastery, right back into these remote areas, you still living with yourself, which is filled with the world. So going to the outbacks and going to the hills and developing a commune community, this isolated, protected society, you think you can live in this little society of people and only people that can come into your little bubble on your street are just the ones who are just like you. Keep reading the word of God because you don't have it right. Because this approach and other approaches, they seek to take us out of the world, has two problems. First problem is that you bring the world with us wherever you go. In your monastery, your little communion, uh, commune, or your little hilltop moment, or your outback moment. You're just going to take your problems with you. They haven't been dealt with. And two, the other problem is that Jesus intended us to be in the world, but not of the world. We see that and read that today in John chapter 17, verses 13 through 18. A sweet little read. Verse 16. He now gives them the characteristics of what the world looks like. What is it? For all that is in the world. Three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The passion for this world, the possessions of this world, the position of this world, the power of this world, these three things is what causes people to not mature, 
or not even come to the Lord at all. The characteristic of the world, John says here, expresses itself through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These lusts seek to draw our own flesh away into the sinful and worldliness that we live in. Lust of the fallen nature seeks these things. Why am I struggling, Pastor, with what my walk with? Think, examine your life. Do you have any lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or pride of life in your life? Be honest, be open in your life. Do I have these things? And if you, those are going to pop up. He's going to reveal those to you. Why? Because you're asking earnestly, God, help me. I want to mature. Do you have these things? That is what's going to hinder your spiritual growth, he says. To this day, every temptation, every attack from the enemy, and every worldly seduction falls into one of these three categories. Why? Because this is Satan's way of doing it. He's used these three things all from the beginning of time. These same tricks, same method. He hasn't changed. What does it mean to lust? In the Greek, it can mean cravings, desires. It's men of the world live for the cravings, the desires, the lusts of sinful men. These, this is what it is to be living in the world. And it's these aspects of the world that John may have in mind for the very first pursuit of worldliness that Eve in the Garden of Eden in John, uh, Genesis 3, 6 talk about. If you remember, Eve was right there in the Garden of Eden. Satan came and tempted her. And it is said that she took the forbidden fruit from that tree. She saw that the tree was good for food. She thought how good the fruit would taste and how it would satisfy her flesh, her bodily appetites. She was after the lust of the flesh. We see that she continues to show the other aspects. He says that Eve in the garden, she took the forbidden fruit when she saw that the fruit was pleasant to the eyes. The world system, the Satan was using the pleasantry of the eyes to draw her to that pretty thing, that desirable thing. It pleased her covetousness and her acquisitiveness nature. She went after the lust of the eyes. Eve also in the garden took of the forbidden fruit when she believed that it was desirable to make one wise. How smart the fruit would make me. How great that would be for how her husband would admire her now because of the wisdom that she gained. She went after the pride of life. See, the pride of life is someone who lives for superiority over others. 
that ostentatious or pretentiousness that is so to impress others. And how you can get caught up there to impress others from an outward appearance of that you're more godly. But it's just deception. But when I read this, and I look at this in the definition of the world, I say, God, how, how do I overcome this? How do I battle this? How do I deal with this in my own life? It, think about the scripture here. He says, it's not of the Father, Corey. Just understand, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of me at all. It's just the world. So when you follow me, those three things will not be in your life. They're not going to be hooks for you. They're not going to be lurements for you. You're going to look at that and go, you're dangling a hook in front of me. I'm going to get away from it. I don't, I'm not going to go looking and because of the sparkly little thing on the end of the hook. And that's where the Satan works. He dangles these things, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes of pride of life, so that you will go over and Crap, grab a hold of that hook and then Satan just hooks what's it called fisherman set it he set you I just realized when I read this scripture I just it's very simple for me God knows we have fleshly bodily nature and physical needs that Feel good when satisfied. God created me that way. Yet it is not God's nature to influence us in the lust of the flesh. God knows we have eyes. He created these miraculous God-given eyes. And the appearance means a lot to us of what we see. It appears. That's important to us. He made us to enjoy the beautiful world that he's created around us. To please us. But God always looks beyond the outward appearance. And it is not in God's nature to influence us through the lust of the eyes. God knows we have emotions. God knows we have a psychologist, a mental status that needs to be wanted and to be loved and to be accepted and to accomplish things. That's how God created us. He made us that way for a purpose, for his plan and purpose. But it's not God's nature to influence us through the pride of life. So when I hear churches and I hear religious circles and these para-religious things that are going on that through music and through teachings and through things that they do to, to lure you into their organizations through the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life, it drives me nuts because I know it's satanic. Because the word of God tells me so. It's worldliness. Don't be deceived, John says. Don't be, I'm warning you, don't be distracted. 
by the worldliness, even in Christian circles or religious circles. Don't be lured. Because it's not of the Father, but it is of the world. You know, sometimes we, we forget how, how much the world dominates our thinking. How our thoughts are more of the world than of the Father. <laughs> you know, you get in, sometimes you get in these conversations and you find that we really think we think more biblically than we really do. We should examine regularly our habits of, of how we think and how we see things and how we respond to things and see if they follow more of the world or more of the God the Father. We should always examine that. Why am I responding to that way? Is that from a worldly perspective or is that from a biblical perspective? Because you need to keep our biblical glasses on and, and filter and see all things from a biblical perspective because it's God's truth. It's always right. And you always want to be right because you follow the word of God. Think of the standard of, for success. What is success to you? What's going to think your self-improvement and you're going to be the best of who you can be? Is that based on your own logic? Is it based on what the world standards are? Or is it based on the word of God, a godly example of what success is in God's eyes? Would you consider Apostle Paul a failure or a success? All the apostles, would you see them as Failures or success, they've all been martyred, most of them. Most people look at that and say, it wasn't success. They weren't millionaires. They don't have their names on buildings. They don't have the cash flow. They don't have the car. They don't have the house. Or should I say cars? And houses? No, no. Think of the standard of spirituality. Is it a worldly or godly perspective that you take when it comes to spirituality? Because there is a worldly spirituality. You do know that. And many, many people embrace it today. Even if it goes against the word of God, they still embrace it. That Don't. You've been deceived. You've been bewitched, as the Bible talks about. Make sure our spirituality and our life lines up with the Bible. That's why we're called spiritual maturity. It shows how great our need is, is to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Romans 12, 2. Is God, are you allowing God to, to be able to renew your mind and how you think? Because here's what John is saying. If you love the world, if you love the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, just remember verse 17, and the world is passing away. All those desires, all that flesh, all that, the, 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 the lust and the desires and the seductions and all those things, they're all passing away. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. My brothers and sisters, we must have 
a long-term perspective. We must keep our minds and understanding of who we are as children of God. And this is not our home. Our home is with God. In His presence. The world is passing away. It is self-destructing as we speak. But we have no fears of that. Why? Because absent from this body, we'll be in the presence of the Lord. (laughs) We don't have to fear our bodies being destroyed. We're going to get new bodies anyway. You don't have to worry about your 401 k You all seem to be too young to have 401Ks probably by now. But, you know, you don't worry about your 401K or your house or houses. or All that stuff is going to burn. Why? Because we are children of God. We're going to inherit eternity. And everything you do for God today, you will be rewarded in heaven then. But you must understand this. John's saying, the world is passing away. And it's not based on a prayer. It's not based on a wish. It's not a spiritual sounding desire. Ooh, the world is passing away. Oh, that sounds so religious. I hope you're not thinking that way. It is a fact, my brothers and sisters. The world is passing away. It will not because of climate change that this world is going to pass away. It's not because of climate change. Oh, God is going to send a fire down. Oh, it's going to get real hot. But as a child of God, we have a promise we'll be raptured out of here. Because judgment does not come upon his bride. The groom does not beat the bride. He doesn't set her on fire. He brings them out. brings into his safety of his loving arms that's our surety that is our promise it's a fact that the world is passing away and we must live our lives and our thoughts should be in line with and aware of that fact every day i think the most powerful illustration of this is the life of lot we see in genesis 13 14 and 19 lot attached himself to the most, one, the most spiritual man at that time. His name was Abram, Abraham. Yet he was selfish and chose for himself what seemed the most beneficial to him, the most profitable to him, without considering the spiritual implications of what he was going to do by chasing the things of this world at that time. He didn't even think of how that was going to affect him spiritually, affect his life long term. He just wanted what he wanted. And he became financially prosperous. He pitched his tent toward the wicked, worldly city of Sodom. And after a while, he was sitting in the gates of the city as one of Sodom's social leaders. He went from, let me go see and love that land, to actually becoming part of the infrastructure of that world. Became a leader within that city, a wicked city. He had worldly status, influence, wealth, comfort, all the things the offer the world offered at him. Yet it was all taken away in a moment 
when the judgment of God came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot put all his eggs in the wrong basket. All his future was all settled into the things of this world. And it was burned up by God just like that. See, we must and we have to understand we have the abiding life of fellowship with God. As a child of God, you have an abiding life with God. Rejecting the sinful things of this passing world is a life that has no real ending for you and I. We have eternity to look forward to. And because some things are forever, it is much wiser for you and I to invest our lives into which cannot be lost. And what are those things? The will of God. John says, the will of God abides forever. That is what we focus on, my brothers and sisters. That's what we have to look forward to and not what this world offers. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. Again, we thank you, Lord, for opening up your word, speaking to us as you spoke to John to speak to his readers. Then you use your word that is living and abiding forever. Your word will never go away. We thank you. You now use it for us this day by the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing to light the truths of your word. Help us to understand and live lives. If we're little children now, Lord, help us to grow into that young men and women. If we're young men, let us continue to grow into the maturity of a father or a mother. All of that being pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.